Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On the 1st of September, 1939... Following the Nazi annexation of Poland, Britain declared war on Germany. And in a brutal conflict which spanned four continents and raged for six years and one day, by the end of the Second World War, over 73 million people would be dead. Being short on soldiers, the Military Training Act reinstated national service and all healthy men aged 18 to 41, were conscripted into the Army, Navy and Air Force. Although vital, conscription severely depleted Britain's emergency services. And even though London's Metropolitan Police Force maintained a total of roughly 19,500 officers for the duration of the war, their numbers were bolstered by inexperienced reservists, special constables, and retired officers. And with the already overworked police officers burdened with new wartime duties, including chasing deserters, enforcing the blackout, and aiding the rescue effort after the Blitz, with the crime rate in England having increased from 303,000 offences per year in 1939, to 478,000 offences in 1945, the depleted police force struggled to stem a new flow of crimes, such as looting, bootlegging and black market trades. At the height of the war, with the city in blackout and a population in fear as Nazi bombers loomed overhead, a new terror stalked the seedy streets of London's West End. With an insatiable hatred of women, a thirst for blood, and a hunger to slash, torture, and kill. No one knew his name, no one heard his voice, and no one had seen his face. But over the last 24 hours, this sadistic maniac had strangled, posed, and mutilated two seemingly unrelated women in two different parts of the West End, at the start of what would become a five-day killing spree. My name is Michael, 
I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part three of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing on Gosfield Street, W1, in an upmarket residential area called Fitzrovia, north of Soho, and barely five minutes' walk from Wardour Street, Oxford Circus, and Regent's Park. Being a small one-way side street, lined with at least six trees, but no bushes, no grass, and no flowers, no cats, no dogs, and no birds, no stores, no cafes, and no pubs, no shoppers, no buskers, and no life whatsoever. Gosfield Street is quite possibly one of the most boring places in the West End. And number 9 to 10 Gosfield Street is a prime example. As being a red and brown bricked three-story mansion house, which is really just a posh way of saying a block of flats. Most residents seem to have an allergic reaction to the pavement, as the only time they're ever seen on the street is to slip into an Uber, scowl at a lost homeless man, shout at a dog plop dropper, shoo away an Asda delivery truck having secretly disguised their cheapo shopping in Waitrose bags, and noisily shushed a certain pot-bellied, bald-headed murder podcaster for daring to make a noise within earshot of their £1.1 million flat, having instantly devalued it simply because I'm a brummie. But back in 1942, 9-10 Gosfield Street truly was a working-class neighbourhood full of underpaid and undervalued skilled and unskilled workers, whether seamstresses, waitresses, cobblers, tailors, bakers, maids, and of course, prostitutes. And today, as much as the elderly may crow that, oh, the streets were much safer in my day, there was no crime, we all left our doors unlocked, and everybody looked out for each other. This is a story which would greatly dispute that, as Flat 4 at 9-10 Gosfield Street was the home of the third victim of the Blackout Ripper. And her name was Margaret Lowe. The early life of Margaret Lowe is as mysterious as her death. Being born on an unspecified date in 1899, Margaret Florence Campbell Burkett was the twin sister of Sydney, one of four siblings raised in the coastal town of Napier in the Hawke's Bay area of New Zealand. Living in a picturesque setting surrounded by clear skies, blue seas, sandy beaches and green fields. Although they were not a wealthy family, through hard work, struggle and dogged persistence, they lived a comfortable lifestyle in an idyllic part of the world. And everything was good. But for unfortunate reasons, known only to them, whether sickness, bereavement or financial hardship, 
the entire family uprooted back to England, where life would only get poorer, harder and darker. Having dramatically downsized from their own beautiful bedside home, to live in a shared lodging house, amongst the industrial smog of Hoxton in East London, with an expanding family and an ever-decreasing income, life got worse for the family when their father was killed during the First World War, leaving behind a widowed mother with four young children and no pension or savings. Dreaming of living a better life and shamed by the stench, poverty and squalor she lived in, Margaret left school with a limited education and spent five years toiling away in several unskilled, dead-end jobs for long hours, very little pay and no future. What happened in between is uncertain. But in 1919, 20-year-old Margaret, under the alias of Peggy Campbell, was charged at Bow Street Magistrates Court, convicted of living off the immoral earnings of prostitution and was fined 20 shillings. Shamed by her conviction, her sentence and the depths to which she had sunk, two years later, fate seemed to finally smile on Margaret as having fallen in love with 40-year-old Frederick George Lowe, a kindly widower who was 18 years her senior. On the 11th of October 1921, they married in the pretty market town of Rochford in Essex, gave birth to a beautiful baby girl called Barbara, and set up a fancy dress shop in the nearby coastal town of Southend-on-Sea. And having returned to an idyllic life, full of clear skies, blue seas, sandy beaches and green fields, once again, life was good. But after 11 years of marital bliss, on the 14th of December 1932, 51-year-old Frederick George Lowe died, leaving Margaret a widower with a four-year-old daughter to raise alone. And although Frederick had savings and insurance to secure his family's future, being racked with grief, depression and alcoholism, with the shop shut down, her home boarded up and her daughter Barbara taken into care. Margaret had lost everything. Within two years, Margaret had gone from being a happily married mother and a prosperous shopkeeper to a homeless, childless, penniless alcoholic. And seeing no other option, she moved back to London, worked a series of dead-end jobs, and later returned to prostitution, where just a few years later, she would die at the hands of the Blackout Ripper. Between Monday the 9th and Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, on three consecutive days, in three different streets within one mile of the West End, three women were murdered. 
But if their sadistic deaths were perpetrated by the same man, how does he know these women? And what connects them? Perhaps their birthplace? This we can rule out as Evelyn Hamilton was born and raised near Newcastle in the northeast of England, Evelyn Oakley in Lancashire in the northwest, and Margaret Lowe in Napier in New Zealand and Hoxton in East London. So none of these women were childhood friends. Education. This we can rule out as with Hamilton being degree educated at Edinburgh University and Oakley and Lowe having left school with no qualifications. Being raised in different counties and countries almost eight years apart, none of them would have been school friends. Personality. Again, we can rule this out as with Hamilton being a shy pharmacist Oatley being a confident socialite, and Lowe being a depressed alcoholic. Even though they never lived on the same street, frequented the same pubs, and with the exception of a few occasional stays at the Three Arts Club for lectures, Hamilton never lived in London, so it's highly unlikely that they socialised together. In fact, as three wildly dissimilar women, from different statuses, outlooks and situations, although they were all within one square mile of each other during those three fateful days, based on the hundreds of witness statements taken by the police from anyone who knew them, there is no evidence at all that Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Lowe ever met or knew each other. And the only time that their names were linked together was when they were murdered. By 1942, 43-year-old Margaret Florence Lowe had been a West End prostitute for eight years. But as familiar as she was to sex workers and servicemen alike, very little is known about her as although she went by the aliases of Peggy Campbell and Peggy Burkett, locally she was known as the Lady. Physically, Margaret was unremarkable. As being a portly woman of five foot and five inches tall, with neck-length brunette hair and a side parting, neat makeup a maternal smile and a slightly bulbous nose brought on by the effects of chronic alcoholism, she easily resembled any other prostitute in Piccadilly. But as a person, the lady was very much a woman of many contradictions. Neatly dressed in polished black shoes, shiny black leather gloves, a black leather handbag, an elegant felt hat and a large fur coat. Although Margaret had been convicted three times of soliciting for sex and behaving in an indecent manner, each time using different aliases, she always walked with her head held high as if she was a well-to-do lady off for a night at the theatre. 
as a plummy-voiced woman with an indeterminately posh accent, who enunciated her H's, said whom instead of who, we instead of us, and one instead of I. Although she'd never denigrate herself by swigging back a pint or picking up punters in the local pubs and clubs, she was often found drunk and tottering the curbs of the West End, singing little ditties and slurring her words. And as an obviously refined woman, full of airs and graces, who was too busy to stop, too posh to chat, and too senior to socialise with anyone below her status, Margaret always walked alone. No friends, no joy, just drink. A sad, lonely lady, clinging to the long-lost memory of a life which once was. Unlike most prostitutes, Margaret didn't have a patch. Instead, she chose to walk in a large square, right around Soho, from Shaftesbury Avenue to Charing Cross, Oxford Street to Regent Street, and back to Piccadilly Circus. And with her only working after 11 o'clock at night, it was almost as if Margaret didn't want to be seen. Describing prostitution as a dirty piece of work, Margaret hated her job, resented her punters, and only did the dirty deed to survive. But as a chronically depressed alcoholic, who sold her body to earn money, earned money to buy booze, and drank booze to dull her senses so she could earn more money by having sex, she was trapped in a vicious circle, of which there was no way out. And although she was nicknamed the Lady, as a feisty, argumentative and belligerent boozer, who wouldn't stand for ill manners, coarse language or any rough stuff, she was widely known to be a real tough cookie and a scrapper who could easily handle herself. And in an illegal job, which involved inviting numerous strangers back to her flat for sex during the blackout, being handy with her fists was a skill which, unfortunately for Margaret Lowe, came in very handy. In the early hours of Friday the 30th of January 1942, just two weeks prior to her death, in flat four on the ground floor in numbers 9 to 10 Gosfield Street, Margaret was physically assaulted in her bed by a punter she had picked up in Piccadilly. Forcibly barging the Canadian soldier out of her door, with fists flailing and feet flying, Margaret screamed at the top of her lungs, Help! Police! Murder! Causing such a ruckus, it awoke her neighbours, Florence Bartolini in flat one, and Ralph George Stevens in flat two. And although the police were called, statements were taken, and the worst of her injuries was a badly bruised chest. With the man having fled, and Margaret unwilling to press charges, for fear of implicating herself in the illegal act of prostitution, the case was dropped, and her attacker was never caught.
One week later, Margaret was assaulted again. Two weeks later, she would be dead. Between roughly midnight and just after 1am, on Monday the 9th, Tuesday the 10th and Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, three wildly different and unrelated women, who witnesses claim had never met, were strangled, posed and brutally murdered on different streets in London's West End. But if these three women had died at the hands of the same man, why did he pick them? Physically, all three women were between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 5 inches in height, aged from their mid-30s to early 40s, and with none of them being either stunning, ugly or memorable in any way, the best they can be described is average and unremarkable. And that's where the physical similarities end. Evelyn Hamilton was an average-sized brunette, Evelyn Oakley was a slim blonde, and Margaret Lowe was a portly brunette. And although he clearly picked women that a taller, heavier man could overpower, he didn't seem attracted to one type of woman. Geographically, the only similarities were that they were all murdered in the West End, with all three having died on different streets, Montague Place, Wardour Street and Gosfield Street, two having died in private flats, one in a public space, and with no witnesses or suspects of any kind, and only two fingerprints found which didn't match a single felon on Scotland Yard's print index, the police had no idea who their killer or killers were. And even with a wealth of witness statements from a wide variety of sources, the overworked and understaffed police force had no idea where any of these women were picked up, who had approached them, or how they had met their murderer. But what follows are the last known sightings of Margaret Florence Lowe. On the morning of Tuesday the 10th of February 1942, at roughly the same time that the police were examining an horrific crime scene, barely a few streets away at 153 Wardour Street, involving a semi-clad lady, a razor blade, a can opener and a trail of blood six feet long. Margaret walked into a butcher's shop at 41 Great Titchfield Street, one street west of her home, and spoke to the owner, Emily Harris. Unlike her usual grumpy, feisty and frumpy self, on this day, Margaret was in a chipper mood. Her dark mood had lifted. As with the weekend approaching, Margaret's daughter, no longer a sullen six-year-old, placed into care at St Gabriel's Orphanage in Southend-on-Sea, but now a vivacious 15-year-old who had blossomed into a strong young woman, Barbara Lowe would be paying her mother a regular visit. This was the one good thing 
in Margaret's miserable life and her last connection to happier times. Excited at the prospect of seeing her daughter, Margaret didn't buy anything at the butcher's. Instead, using her weekly ration, she asked Emily to put aside some lamb's livers, kidneys, bones and fat so she could bake her baby a suet pudding. A real treat during the hardships of wartime England. Sadly, being so solitary, the next confirmed sighting of Margaret wasn't until 12.30am. A full 13 hours later, and roughly an hour before her death. But this was also her last known sighting. Kathleen Nora Clark, a local sex worker, spotted the prostitute she knew only as the lady. Strolling by Eros News Theatre on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Piccadilly Circus, heading by Monaco's restaurant, where barely one night before, Evelyn Oatley had waved goodnight to Laura Denmark and Molly de Santos Alves, with the two of them having picked up a red-headed corporal and a fair-haired aircraftman. As always, Margaret was alone. Impeccably dressed in her polished black shoes, shiny black leather gloves, black leather handbag, an elegant felt hat and a large fur coat. She smoked a cigarette from her silver cigarette case as she shimmied along the curbside. Slightly tipsy, singing merrily to herself, her spirits high as although the night was bitterly cold, she had something to look forward to. At approximately 1.10am, two independent witnesses living at 9-10 Gosfield Street, Florence Bartolini in Flat 1 and Ralph George Stevens in Flat 2, both basement flats situated below the communal door, heard the unmistakable sound of the woman they knew as Mrs. Lowe, unlock the door and quietly enter, accompanied by a man. And although they didn't see him, his heavy footsteps had the dull thump of men's boots and his accent was unmistakably English. Although their conversation was unintelligible, their voices were low, their tone was cordial, and she welcomed the man into her flat. But unusually for Margaret, who witnesses state wasn't the best of neighbours, and often kept the whole house awake by playing loud music on the gramophone in the dead of night to deaden the sounds of a sex worker in action. After a brief chat and the clink of glasses, there was silence. After which, Florence and George fell asleep. No one heard any screams, shouts or cries. Nothing was broken, smashed or trashed. And with the exception of Margaret, no one saw his face. In fact, the only sound which was heard the whole night was at an indeterminate hour when bleary-eyed Florence Bartolini 
was briefly awoken by the heavy thud of a flat door being shut, the communal door being opened, and a heavy-booted man briskly walking into Gosfield Street and heading right in the direction of Baker Street, Warren Street and Regent's Park. And with these being the usual sounds heard nightly from the flat of a 43-year-old alcoholic sex worker, thinking nothing more of it, Florence rolled over and went back to sleep. So with very little eyewitness testimony and very few pieces of tangible evidence, what can we say for certain about the man who murdered Margaret Florence Lowe and possibly Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, if this was him at all? She clearly felt comfortable and unthreatened in his presence. So either she knew him, liked him, or he didn't look, sound or act like a man who deep down was a sadistic sexual monster. If so, was he driven to kill by drink, drugs or mental illness? Was his hatred of women triggered by a childhood trauma having talked to Margaret? Or was he a maniac with a supreme level of self-control? Just like Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, Margaret was alone when she was picked up. She often felt lonely and depressed and had been drinking that night. And with all three women last seen in or near infamous West End restaurants, Hamilton in Maison Lyonnaise, and Oatley and Lowe by Monaco's. Was he a regular there, with money to spend, drinks to be drank and girls to be chased? Clearly being confident, pleasant and approachable, who all three ladies felt safe with. Was he a local man with a good knowledge of the West End streets? Was he an experienced man used to chatting up ladies and picking up prostitutes? Or was he the type of man you would instantly trust, whether a policeman, a fireman, an air raid warden, a soldier, a sailor or an airman? And with Margaret being a feisty lady who was well known to fend off any fiends with her fists and feet, just as Evelyn Hamilton had, her scuffed shoes having kicked chunks of brick mortar off the inside of the air raid shelter, had their killer learnt his lesson by striking fast and strangling first, giving himself ample time to sadistically mutilate their limp, dying and lifeless bodies. Of course, with no sightings, no witnesses and no suspects, most of this would have been pure guesswork. And regardless of whether these murders were connected, if they were the work of the same sexual sadist, or if Margaret Florence Lowe was the third victim of the Blackout Ripper, as a lonely widow, living alone, in a single flat, with no friends and no close family, who spent her time surrounded by strangers, no one knew 
that she had even been murdered until almost three days later. The next morning, on Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, at 11am, Florence Bartolini spotted a brown paper parcel at the foot of the door of Flat 4, delivered by the postman, but as of yet uncollected and unopened. And with the large gift being addressed to Mrs Lowe, and Florence's day chock full of chores, she ignored it and left by the communal door, unaware of the unimaginable horror just a few feet away. When she returned, six hours later, the parcel was still there. The next morning, it was still there. And the next evening, it was still there. And as the residents from nine different flats all walked by, spied the parcel, stared at it quizzically, commenting about how unusually quiet Flat 4 was, with no yelling, no music, and no heavy-booted men waking them up at all hours of the night. Still, no one did anything. On Friday the 13th of February, at 3.50pm, having caught the train from Southend-on-Sea, eager to stay the weekend, see the sights, and tuck into the delicious suet pudding her mother had promised to bake, 15-year-old Barbara Joan Lowe entered 9-10 Gosfield Street and knocked on the door of Flat 4. But there was no reply. Having spotted a brown paper parcel at her feet, postmarked with Monday's date, Barbara queried with the neighbours who confirmed it was odd that they hadn't seen or heard from her mother in days. And gripped with a queasy feeling of dread, Barbara called the police. At 4.30pm, Detective Sergeant Leonard Blacktop of C Division from West End Central Police Station on nearby Savile Row arrived at 9-10 Gosfield Street to investigate the possible disappearance of a 43-year-old alcoholic. Nothing more. Unable to access Flat 4, owing to a locked door, and Barbara not having a key, DS Blacktop deduced that most alcoholics prone to lapses in memory would be likely to keep a spare key nearby, and having found one under her mat, the detective entered the flat. On initial inspection, although with the lights off, the electricity meter money having ran out, and the windows covered in blackout curtains, the flat was in total darkness. But as DS Blacktop shone his torch around the tiny congested sitting room, nothing seemed disturbed, out of place, or damaged. As he walked along the thin dark passageway, towards the cramped kitchenette in the back room, DS Blacktop noticed what looked like the contents of her handbag, strewn across the kitchen table. A few letters, three ration books, a pink lipstick, two Yale keys, and a six-inch metal torch. 
but no money, no handbag, and unusually for a heavy smoker, no cigarette case. As well as a bottle of stout, which was three quarters full, but no glasses. And with the kitchen cupboards opened, rifled, and their contents scattered, having spilled all types of cutlery, including forks, knives, and a can opener, across the work surfaces. It looked like a burglary, but so far, there was still no sign of Margaret. The only room left to try was her bedroom. With the door locked, no suitable key found, and three days having passed, with Barbara's permission, DS Blacktop forced the bedroom door. And although the room was dark, in the middle, lying on her bed, he saw the unmistakable sight of the strangled and mutilated body of 43-year-old Margaret Florence Lowe. Having escalated the case up to Chief Inspector Edward Greeno of Scotland Yard, this was now no longer the hunt for a missing person. This was a murder investigation. In an unnervingly similar crime scene to that of Evelyn Oatley, it didn't look as if a struggle had taken place. The coal fire had been on, the bedside lamp was off, her clothes were neatly folded and placed on a wooden chair, and on the mantelpiece was a half-full glass of stout, which two people had shared. In fact, the only detritus in the whole room was a used condom on the bed and the broken handle of a fire poker. Just like Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe was semi-clad and lying flat on her back. Her lifeless body spread diagonally across the double divan bed as resting on a blood-soaked pillow was her purple swollen head as the wide inky black pupils of her bloodshot eyes stared vacantly towards the door. And as before, his attack was swift, violent and shocking, as having struck Margaret across the left side of her face, head and jaw with a metal fire poker, he had used such force that the poker broke. With his victim suitably subdued, grabbing a black stocking off the chair, he tied the taut nylon so tightly it left a one-inch indentation around her neck. And having securely knotted it, with the blood forcing her swollen purple face to rupture and mucus to seep from her nose and mouth, as she gasped her last few gulps of air, during her last few moments alive, he set about mutilating the rest of her body. With her nightdress rucked up around her bare breasts, her legs spread wide and her knees drawn up to her hips. Lying between her thighs, as if he was showing off his trophies, was a white-handled bread knife, a black-handled table knife 
a potato peeler, and a broken piece of fire poker. Across her abdomen was a five-inch wound, so deep it exposed her intestines and sliced her uterus. Across her right thigh was a ten-inch slash, so deep it severed the vein, bleeding so profusely her bed was soaked with blood. And all of which he did when she was either alive, dying, or unconscious. And in a final act of humiliation, with her electric metal torch in the kitchen and nothing else to hand, he inserted a six-inch candle deep into her vagina, almost as if it was his birthday. The autopsy of Margaret Florence Lowe was conducted at Paddington Mortuary once again by Sir Bernard Spilsbury in the presence of Chief Inspector Edward Greenough and the similarities between all three victims were unnerving. They'd all been robbed as having found Margaret's handbag hidden behind a paper carrier bag in the kitchenette. The bank books and anything identifiable remained but her money was missing. They all had items stolen. From Evelyn Hamilton, he had taken a handkerchief and a pencil. From Evelyn Oatley, an initialed silver cigarette case. And from Margaret Lowe, a silver cigarette case. And yet, if he truly was a sexual sadist, why didn't he steal souvenirs, like panties, bras and stockings? Although violated, None of these women were raped. As with no semen found in any of their vaginas and a discarded condom found on Margaret's bed, did sex take place or was he incapable? They had all been mutilated, both pre- and post-mortem, using a strange selection of knives, razors and kitchen cutlery, including a can opener and a potato peeler none of which he'd brought with him, instead making do with whatever was to hand, suggesting their murders weren't premeditated. They had all been violated, having had various objects inserted into their vaginas, including possibly a metal torch with Evelyn Hamilton, a metal torch and potentially a set of curling tongs with Evelyn Oatley, and a six-inch candle and potentially a fire poker with Margaret Lowe. None of which he'd brought with him. Instead, once again, making do with whatever was to hand. And although he changed his method of death, having manually strangled Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley with his hand, and garroted Margaret Lowe with a black stocking. By the way he had left it tied around her neck, once again the police knew that the attacker was left-handed. Margaret Florence Lowe was unmistakably his third victim, 
and again he had made a big mistake. As Superintendent Frederick Cheryl of Scotland Yard's Print Bureau had dusted the crime scene and found three sets of fingerprints. One on the base of the candlestick, having removed the candle to violate her. One on the bottle of stout, which he'd poured in the kitchen. And one on the half-full glass of stout he had left on the mantelpiece featuring both of their fingerprints and suggesting that they had shared a final drink. And although they didn't match any on the police index files, the fingerprints matched those found on the can opener and the compact mirror, which belonged to Evelyn Oatley. But by the time of Margaret Lowe's autopsy, it was too late. As with her mutilated body, having lay undiscovered for three days, and the police only aware of two unrelated murders in two different streets, they had no idea that a sadistic spree killer was on the loose. So by Thursday the 12th of February 1942, four days into his five-day killing spree, with three women dead, and three unsuspecting women walking the streets, unaware of the horror which awaited them. He headed back into the West End, and the Blackout Ripper went in search of his next victim. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to join us next week for the fourth part of the true story of the Blackout Ripper. Hey folks, I have some exciting news. The Murder Mile True Crime Podcast has been nominated in the Best True Crime Podcast category in this year's British Podcast Awards. Alongside those titans of documentary making, BBC World Service and BBC Radio, as well as two fabulous independent UK true crime podcasts. They Walk Among Us, who were deservedly last year's winners. And this year's newbies, just like myself, Slaughter True Crime Podcast. Both of whom are hugely deserving of this very prestigious award, owing to their hard work, research, dedication and commitment to the spirit of independent podcasting. And even if Murder Mile doesn't win the award, I'm honoured to be included amongst this amazing group And this will truly be a big win for all of us independent podcasters. And although the True Crime Award is voted for by an industry panel, you can vote for your favourite True Crime podcast in the Listener's Choice Award. To support independent podcasters, click on the link in the show notes. A big thank you goes out this week goes to our brand new Patreon supporters who, by donating just $3 a month, are ensuring the future of the Murder Mile True Crime podcast and receiving lots of fabulous goodies, including crime scene photos, murder location videos and exclusive Murder Mile episodes for the first 20 episodes. (gasps) So, a hearty thank you goes out to Marie Harris, Mike Featherston and Melanie Goodgill, and with a special donation from a mate from Australia. G'day! 
who oddly have messaged me to ask if, in return, I could bump off their bosses. Uh, well, sadly, guys, I'm really sorry to say, but that is not a Patreon service I offer. Yet. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, Michael. Hello. With the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is part four of our series Into the Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening and sleep well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hello. 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 Friends, welcome to Murder Mile. Welcome to Extra Mile, I really should say. Uh, if you're first, first time tuning in, this is Extra Mile. This is the special secret bit at the end of each episode. Uh, some people... <laughs> Still baffling. They still look at the um, time code on the bottom of each episode and they go, oh, there's 20 minutes left. Must be a mistake. And they switch off. Uh, Loads of people have noticed it, but they haven't skipped forwards a couple of seconds to go, what's here to find Extra Mile? So this is the extra part that I put in where we go into a little bit more detail about the case. It's entirely unedited, unscripted. Hence, there's lots of mistakes in it. Um, This week, it won't be a very long one uh, because... This is already a long enough episode, and it has been a nightmare to record today. <sighs> really has. I try and race through it. Not race through it, but I try and get it all done quickly. Because I don't have mains power on my boat, um, I have to do it off battery power off the laptop. And the laptop only lasts for three hours. And obviously, I have a bit of a stutter and dyslexia, which doesn't help. And I'm moored up next to a very busy train track. And there's an airport nearby. And there's a coot outside who's desperate to have some sex. So uh, this has taken a lot longer to record. So, uh, yeah, pretty tired today. Um, But extra mile. So um, episode three so far, Margaret Florence Lowe. Uh, Interesting case. I think uh, I think you can see how things are escalating now. For me, it's a real nightmare to write these ones because... Normally, I write one or two episodes. Uh, one episode's fine. You can work out where you're going to put all your bits of story. Here, I'm having to think about all these different cases. I'm thinking about not just the three we've done, but the three that are coming up soon. And it's a struggle to keep all of the evidence in the air at the same time. Uh, and often, I, ca- <laughs> I kind of forget which case is which. Because when you look at them, they're all very similar. Especially if you look at uh, Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Florence Lowe all women alone in their flats, all lying on a bed in a diagonal fashion, uh, head over the side of the bed, um, violations to their bodies, uh, cutlery used to violate them, things inserted inside their vaginas. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to keep track of which case is which, and I'm constantly going back and forth going, hang on, which one was that? And you'll notice again that this will crop up again. So, yeah, oh, I'm going to start writing episode four this week, which will be exciting. Um, 
But the thing that I think makes the Blackout Ripper even more exciting, especially I'm hoping that it comes across this way with the way I'm writing it, is that I'm really trying to get across the idea that these are very different women. I think that's a big mistake that a lot of people make when they do the Jack the Ripper case, is they tend to just pigeonhole these women and say, no, yeah, they're just prostitutes. You just They just say mm, she was a prostitute for five years, and that's about as much details as you get. Maybe she was married and she got kids. Whereas me, what I want to do is dive into their lives, tell you all about them and show how he didn't seem to have a particular type of woman he was after. There wasn't no physical connections. There's no similarities. Do you like often they say with serial killers that, uh, oh, there's a boat going past. He's going back way too fast. Can you hear him? Yeah, he needs to slow down. He can't hear me, he's going too fast. With many serial killers, often their victims look like a previous spouse or partner. So Dennis Nielsen, many of his victims looked like uh, Twinkle, uh, who uh, dumped him. Or if he didn't, he would shave them. They often say the same with people like Ted Bundy, people like that. But Blackout Ripper doesn't seem to have a type. They're women of about relatively short height kind of mid 30s early 40s so obviously one of the things he's looking for is a woman who he feels he can overpower he doesn't go for tall women he doesn't go for really big women he's just going for women who are quite slight in a way that he feels he can overpower who've been who are alone and depressed and have been drinking but he doesn't seem to have a type which i find really fascinating they're they've come from very different backgrounds uh education they don't look the same. They're not exceptional. They're not beauties. So he's not drawn by their beauty. Um, so I think diving into their history gives us a greater understanding of who this man is. And there will, but there will be a whole episode just dedicated to who he is. But I'm leaving that to the very end. Um, so hopefully you'll get a chance to listen back to these episodes again if you fancy that. What I might do is I'm thinking about... In a couple of months' time, when we've all listened to this and it's, we've digested it all, maybe doing an episode that doesn't have extra mile with it, doesn't have intros, doesn't have, you know, promos for people's shows. Um, what we'll do is we'll dive into... Um, what we'll do is... We'll, oh, I've forgotten exactly what I was going to say. What we'll do is we'll try and tell the whole story just in one big go. So do it as like a three, three, three and a half, four hour episode. We can just listen to it all in one continuous and see how it goes. Um, so that could be quite exciting. Uh, obviously, I've told this story in a very different way to I've told the others. The others were very much a kind of a chrono chronological story from kind of birth up until death. But with this one, I've introduced the idea that we're constantly um, rethinking the case as we go along. So we go, we go, OK, how did he know these people? Why does he know them? Why does he pick them? We're constantly diving through all the information and going, let's think about every piece of evidence we know so far about the, these three victims. Um, this will change slightly in the next week's episode. I haven't started writing episode four yet, but I, I'm hoping to write that different as well. I might not. <laughs> still we'll find out um so yeah no fantastic episode i think uh, i really enjoyed writing that one uh it's going to be a bugger to edit because of the trains obviously there's no trains at the moment it's gone quiet um and the coots shut up as well 
every time I stop recording. Um, but yeah, no, really interesting case, a real nightmare to research. Obviously, um, the case files were in no discernible order and all of the murders were mixed together, um, which made it a real nightmare. So when I was going through all of the um, witness testimony, because a lot of the evidence in the crime scenes are similar, I had to constantly keep rechecking who was associated with what. So like sometimes I'd read like there's a woman lying diagonally on the bed and I'd go, well, which one is that one? Because there's a few of them who are diagonally on the bed. And luckily you'd see, th or like I'd see something that would say potato peeler. And I'd go, potato peeler, hang on. Okay, can opener was Evelyn Oakley, potato peeler was Margaret Lowe. <laughs> it's like, oh, and especially as the fact that like two cigarette cases were stolen, Margaret... Margaret Hamilton had a cigarette case, but he didn't take that. He took Margaret Evelyn Oakley's cigarette case and he took Margaret Lowe's cigarette case, which makes it really annoying trying to remember which is which. The things he kept stealing are really baffling as well. Why didn't he steal pants? Do you know, if you're a sexual obsessive, why didn't he steal pants? Why did he go for cigarette cases? So anyway, uh, Blackout Ripper... Um, he appeared in this episode. Uh, I know where he is. Ha 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 ha. In fact, he appeared twice in this episode. Uh, did you spot him? If you did, message me and go, Oh, I spotted him. Ah, there he is. Uh, you could be right. You could be wrong. Uh, but what I've been doing in this episode as well is lacing many clues in there. Um, so hopefully uh, you'll listen to this episode and you go, okay, I get all this information but if you listen to it again once all the episodes are finished hopefully you'll notice that there's a lot of really interesting little things that I've thrown in there as well to kind of I'm feeding you little pieces of information to kind of reiterate I put one in there today which is a sentence I've used in a, two previous episodes uh, which I've thrown back in there which hopefully consciously you didn't notice it but I hope I'm hoping that you're unconscious brain did notice her i know i'm going going uh what's the word sub sub what's that word i can't remember let's not let's not bother thinking about that god how how tired do i sound today um i was trying thinking of it's not superimposed what's the thing where where a caption pops up quickly before your eyes and you don't realize you don't see it but your unconscious brain does michael the word you were looking for was subliminal. Obviously, you can't tell me what that word is because I can't hear you, but I'll, I'll remember this afterwards. Um, so hopefully we'll do a chronology episode near the end of this so uh, you can see all of the Blackout Ripper's movements in correlation with all the murders and different kind of things like when uh, when the pathologist was called, when the crime scene was like roped off, you know, kind of see where he was at various times to see you know, if he was around. Um, I'm really looking forward to the final episode uh, because during my research, I found a really fantastic witness statement by a prostitute who the Blackout Ripper slept with um, just after if I remember this correctly, it's either just before or just after he murdered Evelyn Oakley. I think it's after, um, which is fascinating. Uh, and he didn't murder that prostitute as well. In fact, it's quite a lovely witness statement. Uh, and it, I think it really tells you a lot about who he was. Um, 
So that's really fascinating. Uh, there, there was nothing. There was no uh, interesting experiments I've been able to do so far with regards to this case. Uh, obviously, with some ba Sebastiano Magnanini, I did the experiment where I put um, bricks into a shopping trolley to push it towards the canal to see how long it took. With Marta Lickman, I put 125 cans in a, a suitcase to, to replicate their bodies. Uh, just to see how long it took. Uh, but because all of their bodies in the Blackout Ripper case were found in situ, uh, he didn't move them anywhere. There's really nothing that I can, uh, no experiments that I can really do um, that kind of the police haven't already done anyway. Uh, but on my website and social media accounts, I've placed loads of kind of interesting photos. Um, I haven't been able to get crime scene photos because they're still under wraps. They weren't in the original file. But... Um, there are original pictures of each of the victims and coming soon, there will be pictures of each of the uh, uh, the tools that he used, the, the cutlery that he used to uh, mutilate all of these women. I've got f actual crime scene photos of the, well, they're really courtroom photos of the can opener, uh, the potato peeler, the knives. I've got all of them. Um, so they're all there. So I'll be showing you those photos as well. Um, if you go onto my social media account, you'll see that I do location videos as well with each of these, uh, with every single episode we do. Um, I <laughs> literally last night, I was filming an episode on, on nine to 10 Gosfield street, um, doing a usual kind of, this is Gosfield street. This is what it looks like. And as I just finished, it's only a minute long. I'd finished the video. I turned around and there was a man entering his flat. He lived at number four where Margaret Florence Lowe lived and was murdered just after I'd finished filming. Um, I wasn't quite too sure whether he'd heard me talking, but if he had, uh, let's hope he doesn't listen to this episode because he is going to get a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> anyway, no, this has been, I've really enjoyed doing this episode. It's taken uh, months of research to get it together. Um, I've really, really enjoyed just writing them, researching them, uh, recording them. I've got to start edit editing it now, uh, which is going to be a hard one. Uh, but it's great. I'm finding new pieces of evidence and new angles as I rewrite these episodes. Slowly as I go through each episode, and uh, I have to say my head is about to explode just because of the all the information that's in there. Sometimes I go through and I find new connections that I've never seen before. So... Um, these will all start cropping up hopefully in the in the last episode when we tie all the evidence together i can start bringing all those forwards uh but that was the blackout ripper that was episode three hope you enjoyed that many more episodes to come uh i won't be taking a break um even though i did extra mile it wasn't really a break because i was doing research so soon we will be doing some extra mile episodes uh proper ones your big hour-long ones uh, but they will be interesting. I think I've mentioned before that we're going to get some, uh, hopefully some police on board. Um, hoping to speak to some other, other people associated with crime in Soho. Maybe some gangsters would be nice. Um, so they will go in there and that will give me time to go off and do some research. And therefore I don't need to take a break. Because as a podcast listener myself, I know it can be hugely frustrating when you're used to listening to a podcast like every Thursday morning and then they just take a break. Or in the case of one that I particularly love, they've taken almost a year off. Mm, I know. 
I'd almost forgotten that they exist. Uh, anyway, that was the Blackout Ripper. Hope you enjoyed it, uh, and I hope to see you all soon. Um, have a great week. Bye-bye.